You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's bow our heads together before we begin. Father, what immense treasure your word is to us and for us. It is filled with so many warnings, so many precepts and principles and uh, commands to obey and examples to follow as well as examples to heed by way of negative warning. And it is our desire that we would see in your word this morning all that you have for us. Open our eyes and open our hearts. We pray that you would send your spirit to be our teacher and your word would incline our hearts to you and that you would work in us that we may offer to you obedient lives. May you continue to be glorified in and through your people for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. John chapter 6 is where you're going to need to turn this morning. That's where we're going to be beginning here in just a moment. We're going to be talking this morning about Judas, Judas Iscariot. Uh, Judas is a fascinating man. I mentioned back all the way in John chapter 6 when we were there. Uh, more than just a few months ago, that we were going to eventually be, I was going to eventually be giving you a sermon just on Judas Iscariot. And I promised you that when we had got through going through all of the different passages that mention Judas in John's Gospel, that we would take a sermon and just deal with uh, Judas Iscariot and what we can learn from his life. And we've done that now. We've gotten all the way through the very last passage that mentions Judas is John 18. And we looked at that last week. So today we're going to jump back and just look at Judas and what we can learn from his life. And he is, uh, of all the disciples, the most notorious and the most uh, looked down upon because of his act of treachery. Uh, he is then one of the disciples. He is, he is the one of the disciples that is virtually infamous. And his name is synonymous with treachery and betrayal and uh, treason and, and the highest form of, of treachery, betraying the very son of God himself. And uh, if I were to call you a Judas or anybody were to call you a Judas, you would know exactly what they were saying about you, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you? I mean, his name is synonymous with betrayal. And to even use the term Judas kiss, you know what that means. That's to feign friendship and to feign love while you are in the act of betraying somebody. So his his name is almost infamous because of what he did. And he is a fascinating character in Scripture, very fascinating. He's kind of... His life is a tragedy and a train wreck all in one. Uh, Judas is, his life is like a car wreck. It's, you're driving by it, you want to look at it, but you don't want to look at it. And yet you know you shouldn't look at it, but there's something inside of you that compels you to look and to see what you can't see. So you want to see it, but you don't want to see it. That's the life of Judas. His, his complete betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ makes his life for us a warning. Scripture has different ways of teaching us things. Sometimes Scripture teaches us Things by way of principle or by precept that we are to obey. Uh, sometimes good examples, sometimes bad examples. Judas is a bad example. And he is an example of a lot of things. And we can learn some lessons from the life of Judas. And we're going to do that. So we're going to be jumping back to John chapter 6. Because I'm going to take you through all four of the passages in John quickly. Uh, we're not going to go into too much detail, obviously, since we're dealing with four different passages. We're going to be going through all four of these passages. John 6, John 13. Sorry, I missed one. John 6. John 12, John 13, and John 18. John 6, John 12, John 13, and John 18. Those are the four passages that mention Judas. 
And so we're going to draw in information from the other gospel writers as well. But we're going to primarily be looking at uh, what John reveals to us about this person, Judas Iscariot. Before we get into John 6, let me give you some introductory details. The name Judas itself comes from or is a form of the word Judah. And it was a common name in the New Testament era, particularly. Uh, there was no there was no disparaging ideas attached to it, no no shadow attached to it at all, because Judas hadn't done what Judas had done. And so the Jews had two very notable, very honorable men that they would name their uh, child Judas after. One of them was Judah, who was the father of the tribe of Judah, one of Jacob's 12 sons. The other Judas was a Judas Maccabee. Have you ever heard of Judas the Maccabee? Judas Maccabee, maybe back in John 10, you remember, I went into a lot of detail about Judas the Maccabee. Now, I'll explain a little bit about Judas the Maccabee because it's likely that Judas was named after Judas Maccabee or after Judah. We're familiar with Judah, but Judas Maccabee is not mentioned in Scripture. During the intertestamental period of time, that is the 400 years between the end of the Old Testament revelation and the coming of Christ, there were four centuries where there were no prophets, no visions, no revelation from God. It's called the 400 silent years. During that period of time, the Greeks kind of ruled the world after Alexander the Great, and after Alexander the Great's kingdom uh, shook apart, uh, a, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes kind of came to power in part of the Greek Empire, and for a number of years, Antiochus Epiphanes oppressed the Jewish people. And one of the things that Antiochus Epiphanes did was he went into Jerusalem, and he killed a bunch of people, and he desecrated the temple by offering a hog on the altar inside the Jewish temple. And the blood, for years, the blood of that hog stayed there. And the desecration and the defilement of that Jewish temple ended the Jewish worship inside the temple for a number of years. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes forced his hand, as it were, and this happens about two centuries B.C. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes kind of overplayed his hand and was so forceful and so brutal that the Jews ended up uh, organizing a revolt. And this revolt was led by a man named Judas Maccabee. Judas, the word Maccabee means the hammer. So Judas the Hammer, that's just, I love that nickname, Judas the Hammer led a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes and ended up driving Antiochus Epiphanes and the Greeks out of Jerusalem and uh, pushing them back. And then they cleansed the temple and reinstituted worship inside the Jewish temple. So for that reason, Judas the Maccabee was sort of a second century B.C. hero to the Jews. The name Judas itself was very common. The New Testament lists no less than eight different men who were named Judas or Judah. So it was a very common name. The name Judas or Judah means Jehovah leads. Jehovah leads. Now, the fact that Judas Iscariot's parents named their son Jehovah leads may be an indicator that they were pious, devout, God-fearing Jews who raised Judas in the Hebrew Jewish faith. It may be that they had high hopes that he would be a man like Judah or a man like Judas the Maccabee who would honor God. Now, interestingly, Scripture gives us no details whatsoever about the home life of Judas, about uh, his parents or where he grew up or how he grew up or what his parents were like. But it would strike me as sort of a salt rubbed in the wound, as it were, or even added irony if the man that we most associate with betraying the Son of God, Judas Iscariot, was himself raised in the Jewish faith by devout, God-loving, God-fearing people who longed and looked forward to the Messiah. Wouldn't that just be an added tragedy? And his name is somewhat ironic. His name means Jehovah leads. But of all the people on the face of the planet, there has never been anybody who has been more led by Satan himself than Judas Iscariot. The name Iscariot 
is a compound of two different words. Ish, meaning man of or man from, and Kerioth, which was a city in southern Judea. So he is probably Judas, Ish, Kerioth, or Iscariot, the man from Kerioth. And so his last name, or what we typically associate as his last name, is probably more likely a designation for the area from which he came. He came from a small town in southern Judea named Kerioth. So he was Judas, Judas, Ish, from, the man from, Kerioth, the southern, uh, one of the cities in the southern tribe. If he comes from the southern part of Judah, that makes him unique among all of the other disciples, for he is the only one that we know of that would have come from the southern region of the nation of Israel. All of the other disciples, the other 11 men, as far as we know, all came from the northern regions up in Galilee around Capernaum and Nazareth and the, the regions in the north part of the nation of Israel. So that would have made, made Judas an outlier of sorts, somebody who was separate from and distinct from all of the other uh, all of the other apostles or disciples. So he was kind of an outsider even from the beginning. And as such, if he had the typical attitude toward those in the north that most southerners did, he would have viewed those in the north as lesser than him. And he would have, if he was an outsider in that sense, he probably used that as a justification for betraying this whole band of disciples as well as Jesus because they came from the north. So he would have been somewhat of an outsider. And it's very likely that none of the other 11 men knew him before he was chosen to be an apostle or a disciple. So all of that background on the name Judas and um, and his last name Iscariot or Ishkarioth, uh, he was chosen with the other 11 disciples in the same manner and at the same time as the other 11 disciples. His choosing by Jesus is recorded in the three synoptic gospels in Mark chapter 3, Matthew chapter 10, and in Luke chapter 6. Those are the three places where the calling of Judas is mentioned. And in all three of those instances, it says explicitly that Jesus chose Judas and he chose him with the other 12. He gathered together a group of followers and out of that group of followers, he selected 12 men who would be the 12 or be known as the disciples in the proper sense, uh, his disciples, those 12 men. Judas was chosen at that time alongside of Peter and James and John and the others. Mark records it in Mark chapter three. Listen to verse 13 and 15. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him and he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he would send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Now, that's a very interesting verse because it seems to indicate that when Judas was chosen with those twelve, that he had the same delegated authority and power that the other eleven had. Which means that Judas himself was given authority by Christ to cast out demons when he was sent out to announce the kingdom. Which means that Judas Iscariot participated in and witnessed the very signs of authenticity that marked Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. He enjoyed the same power over the demonic realm that the other apostles enjoyed. And you say, how could that be possible that an unbeliever could be given power to cast out demons? Do you understand that Jesus could give power to cast out demons to a tree if he wanted to? One's spiritual condition is not necessarily an indicator as to whether or not they are able to control demons or not. And such was the case with Judas. So he is an unbeliever from the beginning. And for a period of time, he is given the ability to work this, this sign, this wonder of exorcisms. It doesn't mean that everybody can do exorcisms, but it does mean that for a period of time, Judas was delegated this authority to do that alongside of the other apostle, uh, the other disciples. Sometimes using the word apostle and disciple, and I'm getting them mixed up. And we need to keep them distinct because not all the disciples became apostles. You understand that? And some there was an apostle who was not a disciple. In fact, there were two apostles who were not disciples. 
But the 11, which were the disciples, they end up becoming apostles. Judas never was. So if I say that Judas was an apostle, you understand that my head is running way ahead of my mouth and I'm just talking off the top of my head. So ignore that. Judas never was an apostle. All right, now turn to John chapter 6. You and I should never think for a moment that Jesus did not know anything about Judas when he chose him to be one of the twelve. John chapter 6, and we're going to be uh, be picking it up in verse 59. This happens, I'll set the scene for you just a little bit. This happens in front of a crowd. Jesus had just um, multiplied bread and fish in John chapter 6, and the crowd, had, and he had walked on water before his disciples. That was another sign that Jesus did in John 6. And the next morning, all of this crowd came to him, and they said, hey, feed us again. We want more food. Do what Moses did. Provide for us day after day like Moses did for in the wilderness. And Jesus used the, uh, um, the multiplying of the bread and the fish to teach a spiritual lesson about what true salvation is. And he spoke to them some very hard words for them to hear. Verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And Jesus, of course, knew exactly who it was that did not believe. And and when they were offended at all of his talk about, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood if you have any part in me and I will give you eternal life, they were offended at this. They thought that was difficult. So Jesus ratchets it up, ratchets up the difficulty. and says, if you think that's difficult, you're going to see the Son of Man ascending. What if I say to you that you will see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? That was even more difficult. Look at verse 64. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the father. Jesus knew from the beginning of his ministry, from the beginning, he knew from the beginning who it was who would believe and who it was who would betray him. There was never any doubt in Jesus's mind or his knowledge when he looked out at the crowd of people. There was never a doubt as to who the true believers were and who the unbelievers were. He knew from the beginning who would believe upon him. And he knew from the beginning who would betray him. And yet he chose Judas to that task. And he chose Judas to that office of being the one who would betray him. Look down at verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Now there, the word disciples does not refer to the twelve because they are distinguished in verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. That's the first, that passage is the first mention of Judas in John's Gospel. And there he, of course, is called the betrayer. And what we have here is the reference to Jesus choosing Judas to this task and knowing from the beginning, when he chose Judas, that Judas was going to betray him. Jesus knew the condition of his heart. He knew that Judas was not a believer. He knew that Judas would never believe. And yet he chose him to be one of the twelve. Why? Because Scripture must be fulfilled that the Son of Man would be betrayed into the hands of sinners. And so Jesus chose Judas to that office, knowing that Judas would be the one to betray him. And this, wonderfully, is one of these times when we have an intersection of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And whenever we see divine sovereignty and human responsibility in play in Scripture and we sense that there is a tension there, we must always let the tension stand and never try and resolve it to think that we have somehow done away with the tension. We always let that tension stand just as it is. What is the divine sovereignty part of it? 
Jesus knew who was going to betray him. Jesus chose Judas to this office and selected him as one of the twelve. And yet, here's the human responsibility side of it. Judas willingly followed Jesus all the way up until the time that Jesus chose him. And Judas willingly followed Jesus all the way through those three years of ministry as one of his disciples. Judas was not handcuffed to Peter and made to follow them. He was part of the crowd who came out to see Jesus. He followed Jesus around. He listened to the teaching of his own volition, of his own free will. He sat there in that group and listened to Jesus and followed him. And then when Jesus chose him as one of the twelve, Judas, by an act of his own will, followed Jesus around for three years and listened to all of that. He was not coerced. And yet, who was it that did the choosing? Jesus did the choosing. But Judas quite willingly followed him. That's divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Those two things work together. And to compound the mystery of all of that, keep in mind that all of Judas's actions were prophesied hundreds of years in advance in the Old Testament prophets. Let me give you a couple of examples. Psalm 41, verse 9, which Jesus quotes in John 13, which we're going to look at in a moment. Jesus quotes in John 13 as a fulfillment uh, of being fulfilled in Judas's betrayal of him. Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 55, 12-14 is seen as a prophecy of Judas's betrayal, where David writes, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend, who we had sweet fellowship together and walked in the house of God in the throng. In Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. If not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. And there are the actions of Judas, the amount that he betrayed Jesus for, his betrayal, his closeness to Jesus. All of that was predicted and prophesied in the Old Testament. So catch this. It was decreed and sovereignly organized and providentially planned by Almighty God that the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, would be betrayed into the hands of sinners. That was predestined to occur. The Lord knew, and he knew it infallibly, who would betray Jesus, how he would betray Jesus, and for how much he would betray Jesus. All of that was foreknown before the foundation of the world. God knew it, and God knew it infallibly. It could not be other than what God knew was exactly going to happen. And yet, what Judas did, Judas did quite willingly, of his own volition. He was not coerced by any outside force. What Judas did was the expression of his own vile heart, his own covetous nature, and his own wickedness and his love for darkness. Judas was not coerced to do what he did one bit. What Judas did, he did quite willingly because that was exactly what his heart desired and exactly what his heart wanted to do. And yet, God predetermined and predestined before the foundation of the world that Judas would be the one to betray him. And out of that group of people, Jesus chose Judas to that end. That is the marvelous intersection of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Both of those things are true. What Judas did, he did willingly, uncoerced. And yet it was predestined to occur, decreed by God, known by God infallibly from before the foundation of the world, and it could not be otherwise. Judas was not forced to betray the Lord Jesus. He did it quite willingly. We must never think that there is any conflict between the choice of Jesus in choosing Judas and the choice of Judas in doing what he did. It was Jesus' will and his desire 
that Judas do what Judas was predestined to do. And it was Judas's desire to betray Jesus and do exactly what Judas did. Both of them willed and intended the exact same activity. Judas with a wicked will and Jesus with a holy and perfect and righteous will. And Jesus willed that what was decreed by God would indeed happen. And Judas was the man and he chose him from the beginning to do that very thing. Now, all of the lists of the apostles in the New Testament, all the references to Judas uh, in the list of the apostles, Judas always appears last, always dead last. There are three lists. As I said, Mark 3, Mark, uh, yeah, Mark 3 Matthew 10, and Luke chapter 6. In all three of those lists of the twelve, Judas appears dead last. Further, in all of the lists, there's another list of the apostles, by the way. It's in Acts chapter 1, and Judas is not mentioned in that one, because by that time, Judas was dead. And it's in Acts chapter 1 that Matthias was chosen by God to replace Judas. And then, of course, Saul of Tarsus was added after that. In every reference to Judas in Scripture, in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, in John and in Acts, every time he is mentioned, everywhere, every time, his act of betrayal is also mentioned alongside of his name. Judas does not appear anywhere in Scripture that his act of betrayal and treachery is not also mentioned. He's indicated as the one who would betray Jesus, the one who did betray Jesus, the traitor or the treacherous a leech, my, my summary of that. His name is always overshadowed, always overshadowed by that horrible deed that he did in betraying the Son of God. And he is never mentioned apart from that. Nothing good is ever said of Judas. Nothing good. In fact, every word recorded from the lips of Judas Iscariot in Scripture, every last word is either an expression of his covetous deceit or it is an expression of his betrayal of Jesus Christ. Judas says nothing in Scripture that is not related to his covetousness, his wicked heart, or his betrayal of the Lord Jesus. Let me give you an example. Turn now to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. The very beginning of this chapter, this is the second time that Judas appears in John. It is six days before the Passover, according to 12 verse 1. They came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there. And Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume, a pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, notice how John has to add that in again, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Chronologically, this is interesting. Chronologically, this is the very first words ever spoken by Judas that are recorded in Scripture. That means the very first words ever expressed by Judas are words of what? Covetousness and greed. Until this time in the life and ministry of Jesus, until six days before the crucifixion, Judas in the Gospels is silent. There's not a word recorded from his lips anywhere. And the very first time we have him speaking, he is, he is feigning concern for the poor, while in, in reality he was covetous and wanted the money for himself. This perfume was worth a year's wages. I bought my wife a lot of expensive things in my life, but none of them have been worth a year's wages. That is an unbelievable amount of money to spend on a bottle of perfume, is it not? No perfume that I have ever purchased has been worth a year's wages. None. And this was all poured out over Jesus. And you know what Judas saw? While the bottle was being poured out, he saw money pouring out onto the floor. A complete waste. A profligate waste of money. That's all Judas could see. And he objected to this. We could, we could sell this and use the money for the poor. 
And the other gospel writers all mention that the other disciples patted Judas on the back and thought this was a great idea. They, they joined into this. He, they were carried along with this concern. But Judas, in expressing the concern, was not really expressing concern for the poor. He had pilfered the money from the money box. He was in charge of that. And he used to take a little bit of it all the time. Probably just enough to avoid being detected. So he wasn't really concerned about the poor. He was concerned about himself. And he took the money. This is the first words expressed by Judas. All the other words expressed by Judas also express uh, his, his uh, all the other words recorded by Judas express his betrayal and his treachery. I'll give you a list of them. Matthew records more words from the mouth of Judas than any of the other gospel writers. Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 and 15. Judas went to the religious leaders and said, are you willing to give me, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? Matthew 26, verse 25. Surely it's not I, Rabbi. And that's in the context of Jesus saying, one of you is going to betray me. And Judas, to keep up pretenses, said, it's not I, Rabbi, surely. He's still covering his tracks, keeping himself undetected. Matthew 26, verse 48. Judas had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Matthew 26, verse 49. When he walked into the garden and led the soldiers to Jesus, he greeted Jesus with, hail, Rabbi. And then in Matthew 27, verse 4, after the deed was done, Judas confessed, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Those are all the statements that are recorded from the lips of Judas. Every last one of them, an expression of his greed or an expression of his treachery and his betrayal. And it is believed, and I think it is true, that this anointing of Jesus in John chapter 12 was for Judas the straw that broke the camel's back. Matthew and Mark both record that immediately after this anointing of Jesus by the woman with the perfume, immediately after that, Judas went out to betray Jesus. Because I think what Judas saw was the opportunity to get a lot of money. And he had followed Jesus for three years up to this point. And has Jesus been talking about establishing the kingdom and setting up a theocracy and, and making the nation submit to him? Has he been talking about that? No, he's been talking about dying and suffering and being betrayed into the hands of sinners and rising again the third day. And he rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And Judas might have briefly thought to himself, oh, for this moment, the kingdom is going to be established and this is it. And then for that entire week, Jesus continues to speak about his suffering and his death. And there's no attempts made to establish the kingdom. And so in, in John chapter 12, after when Jesus poured out or that lady poured out all of that perfume, that expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus, Judas saw money hitting the floor. And that's all he could think about. And I think that immediately in Judas's heart, he said, that's it. I'm going to get whatever I can get for this. I've wasted three years of my life. I'm turning my back on this. I'm done. And he went to the religious leaders. And Matthew doesn't record any kind of negotiation. Matthew says Judas walked in and said, what will you give me to betray him? I think, and, and what did they give him? They counted out 30 pieces of silver, which was nothing. It was nothing. It was a, a paltry amount, 30 pieces of silver. It was the cost of a slave. As much as the religious leaders hated Jesus, Judas could have named his price. Could have named his price. He could have walked in on his terms and said, I'll give you everything. I'll give you the location. I'll give you the people. I'll give you the time to do it. I will lead you there. I will kiss him on the cheek. I will indicate the man. I'll do all of it. I'll hand him to you on a silver platter. Here is my price. He could have named his terms. These people that Judas negotiated with were in charge of the treasury. They could have given him any amount. You know what he get? 30 pieces of silver. That's nothing. I'll betray him to you for a sandwich. A pot of stew. It was nothing. He's a horrible negotiator. You think you've seen horrible negotiators? Judas was a horrible negotiator. He just walked in and got whatever he could get from it. The very next time we see Judas is in John chapter 13. Turn over a couple of pages to John chapter 13. And this is at the Last Supper. 
This is on Thursday evening prior to the long discourse of chapters 14, 15, 16 and the prayer of chapter 17. Verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 2, two, During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from the supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. And he continued and he proceeded to wash the disciples' feet, including the feet of Judas. And during that evening, Jesus used that opportunity to point out two things. Number one, that there was one among the twelve who was going to betray him. You'll see that Jesus, after Peter protested to Jesus washing his feet, verse 9, Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, for you are clean, but not all of you. Verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. And Jesus was using that as an opportunity to indicate to the other disciples that there was one among them who was the traitor. And as this traitor, treachery was, and traitor was a fulfillment of Scripture, look down in verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And then Jesus indicated who it was that was going to betray him to Peter and John during the course of the Last Supper, down in verses 21 through verse 30. And in verse 30, Jesus dismissed Judas from the group. In verse 27, he dismisses him from the group. What you do, do quickly. And Judas went out, having received the morsel, and went out to betray Jesus. And all of that was sovereignly arranged. Jesus was in charge of that. He allowed that to happen. He dismissed Judas from the group so that Judas could go do what Judas was going to do. And Jesus wasn't interested in stopping him. He wasn't trying to keep Judas from betraying him. He knew that that was what Judas was going to do. And he said, go do it and do it quickly. He could have stopped Judas's heart at that moment, but he didn't do it because he was not trying to avoid the cross. He sent Judas out to do exactly what Judas wanted to do. And Judas went out and did that, and then he taught the other disciples who were the true believers there that evening. And so this is an example. This is another place where we see Judas. And here, Judas is dismissed from the group to do the very thing that he had intended to do. And that's at the foot washing. And by the way, I think that the foot washing itself was an insult to Judas. When Jesus stooped down and washed all those disciples' feet, do you think Judas wanted to see the Messiah do that? Do you think Judas was interested in that? And when Jesus said, you have to do likewise as I've done to you, I've just given you an example. You are to follow me in my example. You think that's what Judas was interested in? In his pride and his covetousness and his arrogance, Judas wasn't interested in serving anybody. Judas, want, Judas wanted to see a kingdom set up where he would be the treasurer for the whole kingdom. That's what he wanted. That's why he was following him. And for Jesus to speak of servitude and service and humility and love and sacrifice, Judas finally would say, I didn't sign up for this. This was just further insult. Even though from the perspective of the Lord, it was a very gracious and humble and condescending and loving thing for him to do. And the very last time that we see Judas is in John chapter 18. You can turn over there. John chapter 18. And this is the passage we were in last week. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus said to them, Whom do you seek? And we saw the rest of that passage last week. So there's Judas actually arriving with the, with the Roman cohort. What was it? that Judas sold to the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver. Talked about this last week. It was the information where Jesus would be and when he would be there and with whom. 
The religious leaders were seeking an opportune time to arrest them apart from the crowds so that they wouldn't start a riot because they feared the crowds were in favor of Jesus and sympathetic with him and they wanted him and believed him to be the Messiah. But the religious leaders wanted to crucify him and kill him. But they needed an opportunity to arrest him when he was alone. Judas knew where Jesus would be. Judas knew when Jesus would be alone, at least relatively speaking. You, you can't About as alone as Jesus ever got during that final week was with the other 11 disciples. Well, Judas knew when that would be and where Jesus would be there. And according to Luke, Judas led the charge. He received the Roman cohort. He stood out front and he walked the, the, the detachment of troops from the Roman cohort and the temple police and the chief priests and the Pharisees and the commander of the forces all the way out right into the garden. That whole group of what we said between 200 and 400 people walked them right up to Jesus and betrayed him into the hands of sinners with a kiss. And in that culture, and in that context, it was an expression of love and homage and, and friendship. And Jesus even was gracious to Judas in that. When he said to Judas, friend, do you betray the son of man with a kiss? Even gracious while being betrayed with a kiss. So that is Judas. Now his end, we do not get from the Gospel of John. But I'll quickly cover for you what Judas's end was. We get it from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. Matthew records this. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. Matthew says that when he saw Jesus was condemned, he felt remorse. Now listen, there's a difference between remorse and repentance. There's a world of difference between remorse and repentance. Repentance is understanding that you have sinned against God and against his law, and you feel guilty not because of what you have done solely, but because of what you have done against whom you have done it. And repentance, which is turning from sin, is a turning to God, and it is an abandoning of that sin, and a seeking after forgiveness and, and grace from the God whom you have sinned against. That's repentance. Judas, this is not the confession. When he says, I've betrayed innocent blood, that is not a confession of repentance. That is a confession of a remorseful man. This is what remorse is. Remorse is feeling, feeling guilt. Remorse is feeling bad. It's feeling dirty. It's feeling low. It's feeling unworthy. But it is feeling all of those things without ever seeing the God against whom you have sinned and confessing that to him. Judas felt remorse. He knew he had betrayed an innocent man. And he felt guilty for doing it. But he never sought forgiveness for that guilt And he never sought to have his guilty conscience cleansed. If Judas had felt repentance, if he had been given repentance and had turned from his sin, the story would be much different. It would be more like Peter, who in a sense betrayed Jesus by denying him three times. What did Peter do? Did he go out and hang himself? No, Peter didn't. He He felt remorse. He went out and wept after he did what he did. But he sought forgiveness from the Lord. And the Lord forgave him and restored him to ministry and used Peter in a mighty way in the expansion of his kingdom in the New Testament. That's the difference between Peter and Judas. Judas felt remorse. Peter found repentance. And Judas went out and hanged himself. That's the expression of a madman who was tormented by his conscience but would not turn to God. Understand the difference between sorrow over your sin, a worldly sorrow that does not lead to repentance, and a godly sorrow which brings one around to face God, the God whom they have sinned against. There is a difference between feeling remorseful for your sin and being repentant over your sin. You confuse those, you end up being like Judas, never seeking forgiveness. And spending eternity in hell because you've never had your sins forgiven. Even though you may feel guilty and horrible and dirty and low for what you have done. Repentance leads one to face God. Now the end 
of Judas's end. It's not just that he hung himself. But for some of you, your favorite passage, Shane, in all of the Bible, Acts chapter 1. This is the end of Judas's end. Acts chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, the field of blood. John MacArthur in his book, Twelve Ordinary Men, writes this, Apparently he chose a tree on an overhang above some jagged rocks. There is a place that precisely fits that description in the field in Jerusalem where tradition says that Judas hanged himself. Either the rope or the tree branch broke and Judas fell headlong onto the rocks. The biblical description is graphic and ugly. Judas was such a tragic figure that he couldn't even kill himself the way he wanted to. And nonetheless, he died. That's insightful, isn't it? You realize that the very first words spoken of Judas in any context mention that he was the betrayer. The very first words spoken by Judas are as an expression of his covetousness and his deceit. And these are the very last words recorded of Judas. He burst open in the middle and his intestines gushed out. His life is a tragedy. His death was a tragedy. His death itself speaks of the vileness of his heart. That's Judas. Now, what do we learn from Judas? Let me offer you 12. No, sorry, not 12 lessons. I don't know where I got 12. What 12? Let me offer to you four lessons from this 12th and last disciple. Number one, Judas is a, is a warning to us of the danger of false belief. We've seen this in John. We've drawn the distinction between true believers and false believers. We saw it in John chapter 2. The crowd sought after Jesus because he did signs. And they wanted to see him do more signs. And they, quote unquote, believed. And John actually uses the term believed. The crowds believed upon him. But what did they believe about him? He was a miracle worker. And that's what they wanted to see. It was an intellectual ascent. A bare intellectual ascent. It wasn't an embrace of him for who he was. In John chapter 2, the crowds followed after him. But it wasn't true belief. It wasn't genuine saving belief. We saw in John chapter 6 when the crowds came and wanted by force to make him king. And Jesus went away and hid himself from them. And then he expressed to them what true belief actually looks like. They wanted nothing to do and they walked away from that. We saw in John chapter 8 where it says some of the Pharisees and the Jews believed upon him. But then Jesus gives the light of the world discourse where he revealed their unbelief. And he said, you still want to kill me for telling you the truth. Abraham's children don't do this. You have your father, the devil. And by the end of John chapter 8, you have these people who at the beginning... It says they believed upon him. They were picking up stones to stone him. Doesn't sound like the actions of a true believer, does it? So all the way through John, we've seen this distinction between true belief and false belief. It is possible to believe wrongly for all of the wrong reasons in all of the wrong things. And people attach themselves to Christianity for all kinds of reasons. Because it is the, the, the in vogue thing to do, the popular thing to do, because their family does it, because their friends do it, because they like the warm, fuzzy feeling of being together on a day like this with a bunch of other people. And they enjoy the fellowship, and they enjoy the potlucks, and they enjoy the children's ministry, and they want a way to, to get back to their community. People attach themselves to Christ and to Christianity for all kinds of reasons, none of which are legitimate, and none of which will make them believers. What makes one a believer is when they come to understand their vileness in the sight of God, that they are a sinner unable by themselves to atone or offer to God anything worthy of salvation. And they see in Jesus Christ the one remedy for their sin and their sinful condition because of what he did on the cross. And they turn from their sin and they believe upon the one whom God sent as the sacrifice for their sin. That's what makes one a believer. Not somebody who just attaches themselves to a group of people because they've been promised that they can have their best life now. It doesn't make you a believer. What makes you a believer is understanding who Christ is and embracing him. For all that he is, Judas is a warning of the difference between true belief and false belief. He is the quintessential example of the fake believer. 
the, the branch that is cut off from the vine that gives life because he did not have true life. Second, Judas is a warning to us of the deceptive power of hypocrisy. It's amazing to me that this man sat with these other disciples for so long, completely undetected. He ate countless meals with them, walked hundreds of miles with them, had countless conversations with them. And yet on the night when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, every last one of those other 11 men suspected themselves before they suspected Judas. None of them suspected Judas. He was a shock. He was the surprise. And yet here was this devil amongst them had insinuated himself in amongst them. And he remained undetected for three years. And the only one who knew was Jesus. And Jesus knew all along. None of the other disciples did. It is possible for hypocrites to insinuate themselves into the people of God and to remain undetected for years. And so Judas ought to make us ask ourselves, number one, am I a true believer? And number two, am I a hypocrite? Am I just keeping up pretenses because this is the fun thing to do, to be here on Sunday morning? Am I making everybody else think I'm a believer when I'm actually not? And I'm just living the life of a hypocrite? If that's true of you, the answer is not for you to abandon the faith and to engage in more hypocrisy or apostasy. The answer for you is to abandon your hypocrisy and embrace Jesus Christ who will forgive you for your sin in a true, true repentance and true faith. The third thing we learn from the life of Judas is the example. He is an example to us of lost opportunity and squandered privilege. Think about this. There, is, there are a few men on the face of the planet who had the privileges and opportunities that Judas had. For three years, he listened to the gracious teachings of Jesus. He listened to Jesus' invitations to believe the promises of eternal life, the promises of forgiveness if one would repent and believe in him. He listened to all of that. He had access to Jesus night and day. You could have asked him any question he had. He could have sought any help that he needed. He could have appealed to Jesus. He could have learned the secrets of the kingdom. Judas could have done all of that, all of that opportunity, all of that privilege completely squandered. He saw the miracles. He saw Jesus heal Malchus's ear. He saw the dead raised. He saw the sick healed. He saw the mute speak. He saw the blind be given sight. He saw Jesus create things out of thin air, bread and fish and wine from water. He saw all of that. He saw the demons triumphed over and delivered by not only his own power, uh, but by Jesus' power through Judas himself. He saw all of the evidences himself. But as it says in John chapter 12, even though Jesus did all these signs, they did not believe in him because signs do not convert anybody. Privileges do not convert anybody. And you can grow up in a solid church, grow up in a solid church family, hear the best biblical preaching Sunday after Sunday, have the greatest Sunday school teachers, memorize hundreds of verses in Awana. All of those privileges will only damn you unless you are born again. They cannot convert you. And that brings us to the fourth thing that we learned from Judas. And that is that you must be born again. Judas never was. He never was. Some people think Judas is an example of somebody who had salvation and then because he didn't keep it up, he ended up losing salvation and betraying the Son of God. Scripture never indicates, not once, not one sentence ever does Scripture indicate that Judas was ever a believer. Instead, he's called the son of perdition, one doomed to destruction. It says he went to his own place, his place reserved for him in hell. He was not a believer. He was a devil, and he was a devil from the beginning. He was a hypocrite and a false believer, a fake and a fraud, and a covetous, idolatrous, blasphemous deceiver from the very beginning. That was Judas. And even though he saw all of that, he remained completely unconverted. Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born again if you will see the kingdom of God. Judas sat there and listened to these conversations that Jesus gave about salvation and repentance and belief and being born again. And he remained completely unborn again. Even though he saw the signs, the signs didn't convert him. All of the privileges and all of the opportunities that you and I are given, all of the things, the blessings that we enjoy, they are useless to us. 
They are profitless to us unless God, by His grace, does a work in the heart to grant you repentance and to draw you to His Son and to cause you to be born again. If you do not have eternal life, it is because you are not born again. And if you are not born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. No matter how sermons, many sermons you sit through, no matter how many times you hear warnings like this, you will not see the kingdom of God. You must be regenerated. You must be born again. This is God's offer of salvation to you. And so with this we close. Do you feel the weight of your sin? Do you see yourself as a hypocrite? Do you see yourself as one who is damned before a holy God and eternally so? One who is lost unless they trust Jesus Christ? If you do not trust Him, if you do not repent, and you will not believe upon Him, you will find yourself seated right next to Judas for all of eternity in the flames in which He is now suffering the eternal torment of God. You must be born again. You must repent. You must believe. That is God's gracious offer of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Turn to Christ. He will forgive you. He will give you eternal life. And He will give you the righteousness that you need to stand before Him for all of eternity. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious Father, may there not be a Judas named among us today. May you draw to yourself those who do not know you, who have played the hypocrite, who are fake believers and they know it. They've never been born again. They've never received your gift of salvation. Draw them to yourself, we pray. We know that they cannot because they do not have the ability to come to you unless you draw them. So we pray that you would do that. You would give them grace to see their sin for what it is, to repent, to turn from it, and to believe upon your Son. We know that that offer is there for all who will receive it. And those who do not and will not and make excuses for not doing so will only suffer the results of, an eterni- of their sin and eternity separated from your goodness, your joy, and your grace. And we pray that none of those may be among us today. May you be glorified through your church. Thank you for these warnings from the life of Judas. We pray that they might serve to encourage your people and to draw those who are not yet in the kingdom to your son, that they may have eternal life. Be glorified through these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.